So in my left hand is a text from Mohammed. Mohammed says he can't make it tonight. And he texted saying, hey, Mike, really sorry, can't do the podcast tonight. Can you give a shout out to Japan Sinks 2020? I'm halfway through it, and it's really something. Every episode is like watching the end of Old Yeller. in the following are those of its participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the producers and the Six Talk Podcast Network. Also, the following contains mature material and mild language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Discretion is advised. So, Mike, is that the reason Mo isn't here? He's watching uh, Japan things? Or is he watching yeah. Old Yeller? Well, everyone says it's an emo- it's quite an emotional drain, so I guess we know how it's affecting him. So does well, the dog die at the end? Did he just, like, spoil <laughs> all of Japan Sinks? I think he spoiled <laughs> just about every episode, hmm. which, which has me curious about it. I'll admit that much. Well, at least we know what his recommendation is. I guess we could say that uh, Old Yeller the anime, that's our recommendation. Wouldn't that be hilarious? I, I well, wonder. you you want to hear the funny one that kind of gave me a chuckle? Uh, I think it was, maybe it was Ness before, but I saw it today that supposedly one of the next uh, Netflix uh, original animes that they're working on is in collaboration with Ubisoft, and they're going to do a Splinter Cell anime. Oh boy. Really? Wow. Yep. This could be good or bad. This could go either way. I really don't know. Don't well, know. it did well for Ubisoft in the aughts. Remember that? It felt like it was everywhere. Then it's just kind of disappeared. Yeah. I but they I still are doing the Tom Clancy stuff, so. That's a theme, I guess. Like, things that have, you thought have disappeared from, like, a decade ago, and then somehow they reappear again in some form. And episode 21 begins on this final night of July. Friday, July 31st, 2020. Just a quick reminder that if you have any questions and comments, we're always up for hearing from whatever listeners we have. AnimeRoundtable at gmail.com is our email address, at AnimeRoundtable on Twitter and Instagram. And if you care, AnimeRoundtable.com for the show notes and archive and the Discord, which we don't really hang around either, but hey, leave us a message. Also, (laughs) do us a favor. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, because hopefully those reviews are good, and maybe we'll get a few more people knowing about this show. So once again, the Anime Roundtable has gathered, such as it is, albeit virtually, Mike Nicholas at six points, James Austin and Kevin Ng, not at six points, and Mohamed Shamarki, as now noted, not here at all. But hey, at least all of us are now in stage three. Oh yeah, well let's talk about that in a sec. Let me just uh, let's let me just quickly uh, finish up the intro. This is the longest we've gone without doing a recording since we started 
doing recordings during the pandemic. So it's been 21 days since we actually recorded, but listeners probably wouldn't know it because that last episode went up more than 10 days after the fact. So who knows how long the turnaround is going to be on this one. Yes, July 31st marks the beginning of stage three for Toronto coming out of the pandemic. Stage three in Ontario is defined as a little bit more open. If you work in restaurants and bars, the indoor portions of such places are allowed to open now, and they are limited to, I think, maximum 50 people with physical distancing rules still applying. It's a big step. Gyms are allowed to open. Movie theaters are allowed to reopen. I think from what I remember, Cineplex Odeon has been given clearance that each individual theater, not complex as a whole, but individual theaters can be maxed out at 50 each, whichever ones they choose to open. So this is a significant step here in Ontario that happened today. Well, not Ontario, because a lot of the province has already been in stage three, but Toronto and Peel region, which is the western suburbs of Toronto, Mississauga and Brampton, they went into stage three beginning today. The only area in Ontario that has yet to emerge into stage three is Windsor-Essex, so way out west, right, right at the, uh, in the vicinity of Detroit. There's been a number of issues there concerning migrant workers working on farms, and that's why it remains in stage two. Neither of you have been out today, have you? Uh, no, I I was out because I had to uh, retrieve a shoe that I needed to get cleaned, and I had to go to Toronto to retrieve it during my lunch break because... Where was it in the first place? Sorry? Where was it in the first place? It was in downtown Toronto. At a friend's? No, I had to. So I was at home and I had to drive to Toronto to pick it up at a, at a, you know, at a shoe cleaner slash cobbler's place. Okay. On Toronto street. And his hours are very inflexible for me. So this Friday was the only time I would have more than an hour to go and pick it up. And uh, it was a little, the drive was a little frustrating because traffic is largely back in full force in Toronto. Yeah, I've driven around a little bit and re- heard the traffic reports enough to know. What's the difference now? There so traffic going around. So now there is a lot of traffic on the eastern portion of the Gardner because they're doing the bridge construction near uh near Jarvis and and uh the Don Valley, like right at that where it's where mm-hmm. the Don Valley and the QEW intersect. He's basically the eastern edge uh, of downtown. So that's, that's where a, yes. And that's where a lot of the traffic is coming from now. And below the bridge is also very heavy. Okay. So that was not fun. And uh also, I don't drive downtown too often, so sometimes I envision how I want to, to get to my destination only to discover that I hit a, a one-way 
or I hit a point where I can't enter the street because Simcoe, if you go north, you get blocked off at Wellington. You're forced to turn left. I know what you're talking about. And I had to go, I had to go right or go east. So, and, and this is why I tell myself I should be using the Google Maps directional thing. Just make sure your phone's charged. Yeah. Like I, I, I knew better though, to be honest. I knew better. I just forgot about it because it had been months. All's well that ends well. You got your shoe? Yeah, and it was a very tough cleaning job because uh, I actually had some blood in the heel. And Wait. that was uh, a tough job. Like, okay. it, like it's definitely a, a job that I couldn't do on my own. Mm-hmm. So, and I knew that even after I clean it, it won't look the same as when it did when I bought it. I... But whatever. What's okay. done is done. <laughs> it's well, a lot cleaner. Fine. Yeah, it's a lot cleaner than I could have done. That's good news, huh? James, I know you've been holed up all day. Yep, I definitely have been holed up uh, all day. It's like, I, well, I didn't, I kind of went outside, but I didn't go inside the property line, that's for sure. Like, mm-hmm. I've been crazy today. Well, that, that's I how mean, it goes, right? Sure. I think uh, yeah. aside from stepping out to run some gross, uh, a quick grocery errand and buy lottery tickets. <laughs> is, uh, is tonight the night for you, Mike? Uh, doubt it. <laughs> speaking, doubt it's it. like, you know, it's like, we're just never going to have any more episodes. <laughs> and you know what? Everyone's going to assume you won the lottery. You won oh, the 50 well, it, million or whatever we're at now. Yeah, was, we never. Oh, sorry. Go on. Oh, no, If you never hear from me, that's where you're going. Finish the line. I was going to say, if we never hear from you again, we understand. Okay, thank you. Well, (laughs) the New York State Lottery back in the day, I think it was in the 80s, they had this phrase, this marketing campaign for their lottery games. All you need is a dollar and a dream. We're way past the dollar days for lottery tickets. I'll tell you that much. Five (laughs) dollars. But that's... The story of my day, that and uh, Yakuza Zero, still on it, but I'm uh, light at the end of the tunnel. We'll talk about that a bit later, but let's uh, get to the business at hand. Hopefully this episode will go up in a timely manner after maybe a couple days after it's recording. Last weekend, however, was a key weekend here in Toronto if you were an anime fan. Actually, a key weekend in all pop culture, because two major things happened, if, if you care. One's the rather obvious one. Comic-Con had their convention, albeit online, of course. Many things to talk about there. The other thing that happened was Anime North. They had their o- online presentation, albeit two months late. Omiji's online experience also happened, and we're going to talk about both of them. At least the things that stuck out to us as we watched both of them, bits and pieces, over last weekend. Where do you want to start, gentlemen? Do you want to start with Anime North? Do you want to start with Comic-Con? We can oh, go either way. Comic-Con, there was only so much, I believe, so... Well, there's only so much that we cared about. Yes. Well, I'll admit I was too preoccupied by Yakuza for most of the weekend, too. So I only saw so much. I think I saw, well, I can easily say I saw more of Moe 
can't believe I said that. <laughs> uh, I, I think I, I can safely say I saw more of an, the Anime North programming than Comic-Con, which is almost none. I had to depend on your links, Kevin, to see what some of the stuff that was said. And we will talk about some of those uh, videos. In just yeah, a most of us <laughs> watched it through the uh, not the live feed. I'm not sure how if they did a live feed for Comic Con, but they must have and stuff like that. But obviously, we I, had to watch the live feed of Moe. I doubt it, because I clicked onto one of those a little early, and I don't, oh, you know, I don't think it was live. I really don't. It was well edited. I'll tell you that. So when yeah, they, it might have because some of them, and I think they probably have done for some of the film festivals where they have the links beforehand. They have everything set, and then it says this is the time it's supposed to go live. And some of them, I think, even say this is when it ends. And I wouldn't doubt that. Actually, let's talk about these pre-records. Because, honestly speaking, that's sort of the story of a lot of what was seen at Momiji's online experience. Momiji's online experience happened from the Friday to the Sunday. It's typical anime north hours. <laughs> Beginning at Friday, 6 p.m. last week. Uh, the exact date uh, it was the 24th. Yes. July 24th began at 6 p.m., six hours worth of programming, roughly, and then 12 hours of programming on the Saturday, and then a final six hours on the Sunday. Uh, they sound like typical Anime North hours, actually. And it was, I think the first impression, not really first impression, but the easy blush, I could say, having watched bits and pieces, it, it just felt like a typical way Anime North would have done things. It just had the Anime North feel that many of us who are familiar with the convention had always had. Which, which is to say it had the fairly educational, philosophical aspect to it. Something like it's not all fanboy, but it's, you have, it, you come, remember the joke we always made about Anime North panels? You come away learning something more often than not. And that's how it felt. You also had the game shows, the way they've uh, done them and stuff like that. So they had like different sects of their um, programming represented there uh, in the uh, over the weekend. And as mm -hmm. they said, they waited because they wanted to get everything together and get it done in a way that people would uh, like remember and feel like they were at the con, which I feel they. Uh, successfully did and stuff like that. I think that. they did a good job in that sense, but I think they were hard done because of the timing. Obviously, it didn't help you that you were going with against Comic-Con at the same time, but I don't think they cared. I don't think that part really matters, to be quite honest with you. And most of it was they had it all in the front, so it was something to give back and stuff like that. And most yeah. of the people that probably would have come are people that definitely would have have been to the convention, stuff like that, and no Anime North. And it seemed like they seemed to get some good numbers. They were in the hundreds for viewers and that for a mm -hmm. lot of the they, they, weekend. They did average, like, a couple hundred each time, I think. I think, I think where, what was the peak number you remember seeing on the Twitch stream? Because it was on Twitch. Yeah, I was watching on Twitch. I can't remember, but, yeah, it was close to between 175, 200, thereabouts. Yeah. So that's not horrible by any stretch. But it definitely and... there were sometimes where it dipped below a hundred on certain well, ones. I, I never, I didn't think of it as hor as horrible. I don't, I don't think that's very good, to be honest. I don't think so. 
I don't. don't. Good. I'm one seventy five. I would kill to have one hundred seventy five listeners. By the way. <laughs> Yeah, that would be great for us, but we're talking about the fourth or fifth largest anime con in North America. Well, it it has me thinking. Are we now at peak online convention now? Are we possibly? But here's the other thing: uh, Anime North has never been very good at marketing, in the sense that we don't like when we get those Japanese voice actors as guests. They're half the time they're not mentioned on ANN. You'd think that somebody in the marketing team would send the press release to ANN and then you would generate a little bit of buzz and then people will know, oh, this guest is coming, so maybe I could consider going to the con or maybe I would consider flying out to Toronto. But but if you don't hear about it, you don't know. And how many people would really know that this was going on in the U.S.? Who knows? Yeah, because there was definitely the initial (laughs) announcement and stuff like that. And there was stuff on the website and probably on the Twitter. But beyond that, you're right. There wasn't much of uh, made. Well, you had me thinking about the history of, or at least the recent history of Japanese voices at Anime North. Because those announcements have been known to be made pretty close to the convention itself. They're made in April most of the time. And that's not always enough time for people out of province or out of the country to make preparations to go to the con. Like I said, cutting it close. Truth be told, Otakon is not always great at that too, but... Usually they make the they make other announcements much earlier on anyway, so it it that helps. Yeah, and you don't think that Anime North is has the stockpile of announcements to really generate enough curiosity before, a, say, a big announcement comes in? Is that what you're thinking? Well, usually you would. I well, here's okay. Let me let me start again usually if you've finalized those contracts you would want to just announce it asafp so i suspect it's more like the contracts just don't they're i just assume that the contracts are not finalized until april for some of those Hmm. okay that's what i suspect i don't know anybody that deals with that stuff. Frankly, neither do we totally, even though we obviously, we, like we've said, we've known a lot of people on staff, but we don't know always the ins and outs. But it's a fascination, I suppose. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about the uh, a few of the things we saw on the Anime North screen. First impression I had was, first of all, it was a single channel. When we talk about things like the other conventions three weeks before, like Funimation Con, like Anaplex, like Anime Expo Online, those shows actually had multiple channels, multiple rooms, so to speak. I think three or four each time. And Otakon this Saturday is going to have multiple channels as well. And I guess that's the thing we talk about is it is very fair and stuff like that because it was just for the Twitch channel. It was just... It was- 
the That's one room, the one account that they had from the social media team. So, and it was a single. It was a single channel. It it, it felt like, say, anime lockdown, but a little bit, but even more polished. And really, really, that's not a knock on lockdown because that was very much thrown together and well and well done for what it was. And that was live too. Whereas this one, they were able; they took that time that they looked for the submissions and stuff like that. That's and some of them were a half hour and stuff like that, so they had to be real polished to get those fan panels done. And then there was some live uh, stuff actually, with the game shows and certain things. You actually did hit a key point. The panels themselves were all pre-recorded. They were done in, by and large, 30-minute blocks. The odd time you would get the one-hour uh, one presentation, but by and large, they were 30 minutes. And they were almost, the majority of them were pre-recorded, unless, of course, it was the Q&As and the game shows. Game shows are a big highlight at Anime North. And um, the production team there that handles the game shows these days uh, did show up, and I don't know how totally how they went. And the 404s uh, showed up as well live. They they supposedly have been doing shows at uh, different cons virtually and stuff like that. So it was interesting seeing them try to pull that off. They did some interesting stuff, even though they were all scattered to the four winds. Well, Saturday Night Live can pull something like that off. Surely the 404s at least have, can take notes. It's not as if they're uh, really polished themselves. But I'm sure they, I'm sure they figured out something, and I guess it went over well. I don't know for sure because I didn't get a chance to watch it. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed watching them and stuff like that, and I thought they did uh, a good job for uh, the time slot they had. They were the Friday night. Yes, they were. So, but they are a staple of anime nor since the early aughts. So, yeah, they have become mm -hmm. that way. They've been around for how long? Better part of fifteen years, I guess. Maybe more? Give yeah, or take. The, so yeah, close to 20 years, I think. So okay. 20 to 15 years in between that period. Okay. And it was definitely Anime North, I feel like, was the kickstart. For them. And then they yeah. went to some of the other cons, like SakuraCon right, like, and all across Canada. I, I don't know. Like, I have to check their history again, just uh, just to be sure. Like, where, because I can't, I'm not sold Anime North was all, like, was such a big thing. They were somewhat big before they did the Anime North stuff, didn't they? Or they were somewhere before Anime North. That's my memory anyway. Can't say it's all there, but they were they were around kicking around before their association with Anime North. And yeah, they're very popular, without a doubt. Kind of a kind of latched on to the craze of improv comedy uh, that would have existed around the time they came on the scene. And they've come into their own for sure. They're certainly quite the thing watching them now. Okay, so first of all, let's just uh, quickly ask. I, I have to ask this question. Did the 30-minute format work for you guys? It was fine. Nice and digestible? Could have been a little longer. For some segments, yeah, I, think, I feel like I think Dave Merrill could have been an hour for Anime Hell easily. Yes, I yeah, wonder how the shorter <clears throat> format would go for uh, for Anime Hell. What, what, what was your impression of it, uh, James? 
I was thinking the same thing, that certain uh, presenters would obviously deal uh, better with a longer format, like Dave Merrill uh, did another anime hell, and he definitely did quite well given he was given a half hour, and then like even uh, the retrospective, and then uh, the more um, educational panels. I'm thinking of the samurai ideology Bushido, and he even mentioned in his opening, he said, it's very tough to do this in a half hour, but here we go. Mm-hmm. So, and that was still a good panel for a half hour to get hour, what he yes. had to get done. Actually, if on that note, if you if you're going to ask me one thing that's that I really enjoyed watching, it was the panel after that. Japanese apocalypticism in anime, I thought, was a really really interesting panel because it had me thinking about how history, how some how such horrible points in Japanese history has had an effect on pop culture and fiction in Japan, especially in recent years or recent decades. So that particular panel was the one that caught my attention, and maybe at a point we'll elaborate on that a little more, if you're going to ask me at least one thing that caught, caught my attention. I mean, looking when I, we look at the whole schedule, I mean, we Veronica Taylor made, made her uh, appearance again at an online convention. She seems to be doing a, a lot of them these days. Always, but always charming to hear from. We did mention Anime Hell, and for what it's worth, I think um, might be worth asking Dave how Dave Merrill himself how how he felt about doing the thirty minute format. So we'll who knows. I think I think uh, we'll have to ask him at some at some point whenever we run into him again. Four oh four. That was Friday. Um, Saturday was obviously a little bit more packed. I missed most of it. I think I. I caught a little bit about of the Wheel of Fortune game. That's why I had to mention the game shows a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> how was that? It only it only went so it could only be so much. It was the first time I really stuck to watch a game show at Anime North. <laughs> and it feels like form. they were trying to get participation from the chat, and that can be hit or miss. Well, what was it? did you see it? Uh, did you see it, James? Yeah, I saw some of the game shows, but it, it felt like they were trying to get. Uh, participation stuff like that through the chat and you can only do so much with that but it is what it is but mm-hmm. it was still fun they they got across uh the spirit of what they were trying to do and mm-hmm. there's only so much you can do right yes uh, actually they did have an industry panel and there's this long conversation about subscription services which i know we'll touch on in the uh, when we talk a little bit more comic-con as well manga planet and futakia Futuki- had a panel uh, on Saturday afternoon, late Saturday afternoon, where they talked about their subscription services and some mm-hmm. of the stuff they got. I didn't really know about Manga Planet. This tells me. Tells so, what me did how, you learn, Mike? Because I'd love to know because there's so many of these weird things, either through browser or through app, that are trying to get either a manga subscription thing going or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And from what I've seen from their site, I don't see much on there. So, I'd love to hear what you've thought of their panel or heard from it. Well, for, uh, the thing is, uh, when you Google Manga Planet, it's not the easiest thing to find. I think it's like, well, I'll, 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 we'll put the link. Oh, we'll put a link up. I, I didn't have a bad impression of it. it. They had me at least curious because of some of the titles they had, but I can't list them all off the top of my head. I know Kevin would be able, is better at that than I am, so I'll let I'll let him let it rip in a second. It was a nice little pre-recorded thing, just like everything else. Everything else mentioned. 
I can't say anything really bad about them, but it was the first time I really heard any details of a subscription service. I think they go, what was it, seven, six ninety nine a month? Or, but they, they, they're, I think they're, those are two separate services. Uh, there's Manga Planet and the Manga Planet, which is more across the board, but Futakaya is, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, that's more, more Fujoshi, almost borderline BL stuff, I guess. And that's a set. And those are it's where all the B, it's where they're going to put all and the and BL stuff. And those are two stuff. separate services. And I think they're two separate services, right? So each one would be, Six ninety nine a month, I believe. The only thing is, when you uh, try and find an app, they don't have an app. They are very much online, and uh, I'll give the I'll give once again I will mention the link later. There's pedigree there. When you look at who who leads that project, and it was a it was more of a conversational type panel with with its head. And then a few other younger employees, and obviously they were promoting various titles they had picked up. I think it was a nice thing for them to have a presentation. I didn't really know about them, but I knew through friends they gained a little curiosity for their uh, for the fact they were going to have a panel. Kevin, uh, did you see the panel? I watched the panel a day or two ago because I. So I didn't watch any of this on the actual weekend. I was out for most of that weekend, but I you know, tried to catch some panels afterwards. And so I did watch Manga Planet's panel. And uh, yeah, I did not realize it was Hyoi Narita, who was the former executive vice president of Viz, who was involved with Manga mm-hmm. Planet. He's the head. That's uh, interesting, considering, uh, what is it, Dallas is the head of the manga go with that other app and stuff like that. Yes. So that, it's kind of interesting yeah. how those yeah. have changed. Yeah, formerly of Delray slash Kodansha, Dallas yeah, Modell, right? Yeah. yeah. We'll talk about that hem in, a, in just a few minutes. So any titles that stuck out from their announcements that have your attention? Saki Gake or Tokojuku? Salaryman Kentaro, I think. Yeah, Salaryman Kentaro was the one that stood out for me. I'm not sure if they announced it there or not, because the only they one I saw was the person yes. one. So. And uh, Ginga Nagaraboshi Gin, uh, which was uh, which was a, one of the which was a very popular Shonen Jump comic in the 80s, and it, it's a different kind of dog manga. It's not about cute dogs. It's about ferocious wolves <laughs> <laughs> and other dogs trying to survive in the wilderness. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And uh, see, I, I was kind of, that one really intrigued me because I read one of the s- spinoff slash sequel mangas, Ginga Densetsu Weed, or not, not read. I watched the anime back in 2005 for that. So I was like, Oh wow. They picked that up. And I feel like uh, I forgot the actual company that had those titles in Japan, but a few of those titles that they announced are former Shonen Jump titles. These were popular titles back in the eighties. That's true. There's a lot of older titles that was that were mentioned in the pile. The thing is, they talked at length about getting these older titles and Mm -hmm. some of the complications and getting those licenses. I think I remember the panel correctly. I mean. I was listening to it passively while uh, playing Yakuza. 
Yakuza is going to be a running running gag throughout the rest of it. That and Old Yeller, I think. See, I could see myself subscribing for a couple of months to read like Sakigake Otokojuku and maybe trying out some other stuff. Although the thing is, is that these are old titles that most of the manga fandom will not Which give is, a shit about. And I hate to say that. I hate saying that. Thing, I, I mean, we gave... In the aughts, I gave titles a shot that I know were commercial failures. Like, Tokyo Pop gave a, a lot of chances to titles like Kendaichi and then Boys B. Those were two of my favorites, which I know never really got anywhere. And going back and going to the uh, Comic Con panel, people mentioned sports manga still have yet to, has yet to really find its footing. But go ahead. Well, some sports manga have. The thing is, is that you need the female fan base to pull through to make it commercially Yuri successful. On, uh, Yuri on Ice, uh, exception or rule? What do you think? Because I'm thinking in terms of in terms its popularity of what? here. Exception or rule? Well, it helps that the show is good, but if not for if not for the females who that show is targeted to, I don't know how well it would do otherwise. Maybe exception then. But but for other but for other reasons. The show itself okay. is very good. I believe that. So you, it has okay. that to go on as well. Well, there isn't too much else uh, to mention concerning uh, Omiji's online experience. I can't say it. I can't say the acronym. Moe. I'm really holding <laughs> off on saying the acronym myself. It, it, it's For what it was, it was simple, but it probably should have been more, I guess. Is that, what you're, is that how you feel about it, Kevin? Oh, I think for a first, for a first try, I think it was fine. I don't. I think the scope and the size okay. was suitable. The thing is, sure, sure, being bigger would be nice, but I, I didn't expect it to be as big as say the AX one or the mm -hmm. Otakon one. Would, it's anime north, or what the Otakon one will yes. be. Sorry. It, it definitely had the feel of what you would expect if we went to a physical anime <clears throat> north, and it's for the fans by the fans, as they've and always mentioned. And it was fun. They did have the retrospective, which I know Dave Merrill uh, helped present at which on is, the Friday, and then they had uh, Steve Bennett on the Friday. Sorry, on the Saturday night that I caught that, and he had some good stories of anime north past and why he kept coming back. Uh, for so many years and stuff like that, saying the same thing that it had that homey feel that you like, it's like you never left. Uh, well, for what it's worth, the Twitch is still there. I think uh, all the videos are still archived. We'll put a link up and hopefully they're still there when pe if people ever link on them or click on them. It was as so, of today. I was so watching it's some worth, stuff today. Uh, going back to watch. I think I, which almost certainly I'll try to. And they didn't get hit with anything for any, uh, anything, any panelists or anyone showing stuff like that. Because I remember even in the Bushido one, they had uh, some of the last samurai there, but luckily no one uh, tried to 
Well, they, that were they were doing that for educational purposes. Well, you never know, right? It's like they still you, do it, and then you right, have to go through the process, right? That's the biggest algorithm. problem. It's that algorithm. Okay, we only we got a couple more minutes. Name one thing. When, let's talk oh, one thing um, concerning Comic Con because yeah. I, 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 I saw the video. I saw the Mongo Roundtable panel. Why don't uh, you guys, uh, we can talk about that quickly. The one thing I'll mention very quickly is the Eisner Awards, which is the comic awards that okay. uh, they do. And yes, it did have some controversy because they were doing the voting online this year because of COVID. And there was an issue. So they had to re-vote all over again. So mm-hmm. who knows how that turned out. But usually, Mongo only wins usually in its category, which is best U.S. edition of an international material Asia reward, uh, sorry, Asia award. And this year for that one, it was actually a tie. Cats of uh, the Louvre by uh, Matsumoto uh, was tied in one with which oh, hat? Yeah, Tai Matsumoto, right? And so mm. he won, and he was tied with which hat? Atelier, and that was uh, done by. Komomo um, Shirahama, and she's known for doing uh, Marvel work and stuff like that too. So, it, but that one's a very different type of book. It's like very pastel It's about magic and them trying to be a magician and learn magic, even though they're not supposed to and stuff like that. Hmm. So, those two won, and it was they're both interesting works. One, uh, the Cats of the Louvre, is from Viz, and it's out. And then the witch hat is from Kodansha. But the one outside, and there has been some manga in different categories, but this is the first time I remember oh, this. one actually winning, and that was uh, Way of the House Husband from Viz. Way of the House Husband, yeah. One in the best <laughs> human, sorry, the best humor publer, uh, publication category. And so... He is the best human, though. <laughs> True, but it's also very humorful too. So, and I do agree that it was very funny trying to read that one. So, I think that's a great pick for uh, best humor uh, category and stuff like that. And I can't remember what the other ones they went up against, but it's great to see manga win in other categories. I've been itching to read that for months. Everyone's talking about Way of the House Husband. Yeah, no, I, I think I mentioned it before, and it it is a fun read if you haven't tried it out before. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, do we want to mention anything else? Because uh, I know we're pressed for time a little bit. Do we want well, to mention we had anything? the manga roundtable and stuff like that, and I think it was I'm talking about mm-hmm. uh, well, what talking their titles and about their works, about about the stuff they're publishing. But I think they the takeaway I also had from it was sales have been okay during the pandemic. Probably at times. In depending on who you ask, there may have been the best run they've ever had in terms yeah, of sales. Matt Alt said he was talking to someone, an agent, that was saying that of all the categories, manga, at least at that point, was doing really well and was one of the few positive signs compared to the others. And others were talking about certain categories that were getting bumps at certain points, like cooking and other things, and then coloring books and stuff like that, because people need something to do and They also talked about uh, the digital and the physical. More people are getting into the digital on certain aspects. And the Mm -hmm. other thing of the uh, international listings. I know Travis was talking about that because, remember, 
a lot of the times they're looking at just the American listings like Barnes and Nobles and stuff like that. But they were saying some of their international yeah. listings they've been getting good numbers from that they didn't even think about that were keeping them above board. You know what I mean? Well, uh, in that panel, we heard, I heard mm-hmm. a name that we hadn't heard or I hadn't heard for more than a decade, Dallas Madoff. And he and now he heads a online subscription service, Mungamol. That's a name I hadn't heard in a, in a very, very long time. So it was interesting to hear from him in any form. Yeah, and he's usually been at those panels too yes. uh, at Comic Con. So, I mean, but, he, it, but the, it's been a while because he said he was out of the game for a bit till they launched this app. So, mm-hmm. and it's and of course they announced a few of the titles they they had acquired. Most intriguing of which, and maybe Mo will want to pay attention, they have the manga adaptation of Japan Sinks 2020, and that'll be on. That's going to be coming onto their service shortly, if not, or if it hasn't been there already. Well, they said, "What was it?" They're on the and it's production that. committee, and well, that right. supposedly they've been involved uh, with that uh, Netflix production stuff like that. So there's a lot going on with that. Mm. Go ahead, Ken. Oh, I was going to say, it's clear that his past with Delray slash Kodansha is coming through because you do have several Kodansha titles on Mangamo. Like, I believe Attack on okay. Titan's on there. Good to have the Rolodex, dude. Good to have and, the Rolodex. And people know what those and, are. And, uh, hey, you have, you have a top-selling title there, which is bound to bring in some people. And obviously, because these apps are new, like... They have to start somewhere, but I'm curious as to whether or not uh, the other publishers, Japanese or English, will gravitate towards these apps through whatever negotiations, or if they'll just create their own, because manga, I feel like manga has always been very fragmented when it comes to like the platforms. Like everyone, I feel like would just want to have their own app, or want to will want to have their own magazine, or will want to have their own uh, way of distributing their works, which is unlike anime in the past, when at one point probably eighty percent of new anime were being streamed yeah, on Crunchyroll, and then there are some curves animation, and then to lesser degrees high dive in Netflix now. Because a lot of, because when I go on the manga subreddit, r slash manga, you'll every so often you'll see people saying, "Yeah, you know, I would actually pay for this if there was just one site that would just have like all the manga." And it's just like, no, that's not real. One site for everything. You don't have that in terms of streaming either. In terms of streaming TV and movies, so I, I would expect a few, sir, more than a a handful of services to offer that. And we're starting. And I bet you a good chunk of those people wouldn't That's pay for it side. anyway. Rose-colored eyes are saying at least my rose-colored eyes, and they're not always there, but at least I'm starting to see names. So Mongo Planet, Mongo Mo. At least I'm starting to hear a few uh, real subscription services. At least. Uh, Remember that Crunchyroll still alive too, even though they forget to promote their uh, manga section. Mm-hmm. Well, I. I Yes, I forgot about they it. Do. Yeah. Like for me, I have to, I would have to dig around, but I don't give myself the time to dig around for 
to see if what such services may exist. I've known they've existed personally. It's just that this is the first time I'm starting to hear names for myself, but without me having to really look. Like the, 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 these names kind of basically fell into my lap and maybe for me personally, that's some, worth something. But then you'll be more curious to see what else is out there. So I, I, I mean, with my time, with my I, personal time frame, I just have trouble looking to see what what services are out there. I'm too busy. Doing stuff. I wish Viz, I wish Viz did one for well, everything please, else why, why that, that they publish. Like they have their Shonen Jump one, but I would like to read more of their shoujo back catalog. In, yeah, you like, would think if they were going to do another one, the next one would be shoujo beat. Mm-hmm. But, but, but the issue sorry no that's what i was just saying that would be sh- sh- this shoujo beat um branding and stuff like that that would be the next one you think they could do you know what i mean mm-hmm. Go ahead. it would require more legwork i would imagine because a lot of those shoujo titles mm-hmm. are not from one publisher some are from shogakukan sure some are from hakusensha some are from shueisha and even though they're all kind of tied together in a sense, they're not actually. So then, that this would require like more like the, the other side of the that of Viz's structure. Remember where we said they were they had two major publishers involved in it back then. Yeah, like we thought it was a great thing, but now we're seeing okay, maybe this might be a hindrance in terms of the way the business has changed now. Yeah, like Shueisha and Shugakukan, they would be fine because those are a part of the Viz family. But then, as like as you said, Hakusensha is another thing altogether. So, mm-hmm. but they're better off probably than other publishers if they were trying to get something going. Well, they if they wanted to do it, they don't do a subscription service though, do they? It's just Shonen Jump where so, they do so, that, but nowhere else really. And it would probably like you just think about the potential. That's all I could think about. But as we know, Shonen Jump is uh, the big thing that makes them the money and stuff like that. And I think I was looking at the recent thing for Crunchyroll, their most watch, what brings in the money for them. And it is those Shonen Jump titles and those Shonen titles and stuff like that that are the backbone of the catalog, keeping things moving forward. It isn't the new titles every season and stuff like that. There may be a few, but a lot of those are just a little something for everyone. It's the big ones that bring everyone in yeah black clover my hero Academia, one yeah. piece so. as i said you just think about the potential okay do we have a final thought because uh, we got to close the segment and then we can uh, take the break for a couple seconds uh i forgot to mention yeah, yeah. this earlier the isekai panel at momiji's was really good. Oh, yeah, as I said, we'll put a link. We'll put a link to the Twitch stream there, and we'll put a link to Comic Cons. Uh, yeah. That was clearly produced for YouTube. At least that's what I feel because it was professionally edited. Oh. The Isekai panel. Oh, yeah. Because they actually went into like the like the history of Isekai how it became as big as it did today. They talked about a couple of specific titles, like very well researched and the presenter was well spoken as well. Yeah. That had YouTube channels because there was another one that has, and he might've done that one too, but I'm not sure. I can't remember. 
is there was one from YouTube, and that was the fan presentation of Culpa and how it will affect anime review channels. Well, that, that's and that uh, was an interesting one just on Mega YouTube in general and educating us. Yes, that's Mega. Uh, that's Mega J Retro. He has a he's Correct. a semi well known YouTube streamer as well. I, I've known I've known that man for the better part of twenty years. I can go way back. I'll tell you about that later. Okay. Yeah, oh. because he did that was a fantastic uh, panel as well, and him educating the rest of us and he, how said, stuff that, from the states can affect all of us worldwide. As I said, he's, and their businesses. He's a very he's a very keen guy. Having uh, known him for as long as I have, like I'm not surprised he was able to come out with something that thoughtful. As I said, we'll put a, we'll put up the links to both to both of them uh, in the show notes. So, but overall they were, it was worth the time if you had the time to watch them. And if you didn't, well, you'll have the chance still for a little while longer. Let's take the break. When we come back, well, let's talk more Yakuza. But we're gonna take another angle on it. We're not going to talk about a game that's been out for five years, but we are going to talk about some interesting statements that its creator made earlier this week, among other things. That's when the Anime Roundtable continues in a couple seconds on the Six Talk Podcast Network. So the highlight for me of the Yakuza 0 game, I think for a lot of players or a lot of fans of that game, might actually be the cabaret minigame that happens. And maybe appropriately, you know what the theme song to the cabaret club game is called? And when you step inside the cabaret, you hear a song playing in the background. You know what the song is called out of all things? Lay it on us. Fake Love. I mean, it just probably encapsulates the whole hostess bar thing perfectly. I just thought I'd put that out there. When I think fake love, I think of BTS. (laughs) Because they have a very popular song called Fake Love. Oh, yeah, okay. I I believe that. Yeah, there's some double entendres on both ends. Oh, Oh, boy. The real question, though, Mike, is when are we going to get to the next Yakuza game when you're going to talk about it? And is this going to be like a series of years down the line we'll finally be at Yakuza 6? Ooh, who knows which way that could go. 2023. Oh, oh, let's get back into it. And the podcast now continues on this Friday evening, July 31st, 2020. Nicholas Austin Ng in conversation with you. From the Six Point Studio and parts of the GTA online via the Six Talk Podcast Network official I just podcast. I want to say anyway. one part of the GTA. Yeah, one part. Yeah, specifically. I, <laughs> as, as I mentioned earlier, I'm there. As there's a light at the end of the tunnel in playing Yakuza Zero, and I've been playing it for the last month, just wanting to level up uh, Kiryu and Majima. And I think I've maxed them out, so I'm ready to probably finish the game. I've actually held off on finishing the game today because I just didn't want to old yeller myself with whatever the ending could be. And no, please, no spoilers on this, okay? 
I get it that I'm probably saying too much about a five-year-old game, but Yakuza's creator kind of made some interesting comments earlier this week as we begin the uh, bullet segment. This isn't really going to be a bullet segment, is it? Just go maybe one or two thoughts? We'll see. Okay. Well, let's see. Toshi, Toshihiro Nagoshi, the uh, executive director of the Yakuza games, had a really interesting thing to say about the recent Ghost of Tsushima game that came out within the last... How long has that been out? A week? Two? Yeah, about a, a week or two and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But very new, and it was delayed, but it came out on like worldwide, of course. It came out worldwide and was... And it's gotten some amazing reviews. And it's done by Sucker Punch. And it's uh, they are known for Infamous and stuff like that. But this is very different to a degree from what they've done before. So they've done an incredible job from the mm-hmm. people I've talked to. I haven't played it yet, but I'm waiting for it to go down in price. But mm-hmm. it looks fantastic. And Even across the pond uh, in Japan, we've been hearing things just like we're going to talk about now. Mm-hmm. Nagoshi just simply said, yeah, we were beaten. We in Japan were beaten. Of course, we're losing. Honestly, I think it's a, that's a game that should be made in Japan. And you can tell, and he just kept going on and on about how the developers did their research, even if not everything in the game is accurate. But then again, there's the other thing is remember, uh, they're in Japan, uh, they're uh, owned by Sony. So they were able to get. Uh, help from Japan studio and stuff like that on the research and that. So there definitely was a lot of help on that and, and they were responsive to them and stuff like that. As they said uh, at Sucker Punch that they said, Hey, can you help us out? We want to make this as truthful as we can in certain aspects. And they did. Yeah. And, and the quality isn't lost on people really in the know in the industry. And he and talked about, too, the same one everyone average. else talked about, the Kurosawa mode and stuff like that, and that it wasn't just a black-and-white samurai movie. Like, they even matched it for how the old frames in the movies were and stuff like that. Like, everything was, like, put to pinpoint artisan detail and stuff like that. So it isn't just an homage to the samurai. It might be an homage to the way it's been depicted in movies, too. Yeah, no, they definitely said uh, Kurosawa was uh, someone they thought about and stuff like that. And the other key element I'm sure you were going to get to that Nagoshi talked about was the main character because the main character Jin is uh, a middle-aged guy and he talked about his quote was the protagonist isn't a particularly handsome lead don't you think at Mm -hmm. your typical Japanese Mm -hmm. company if you showed concept art for a character like him I don't think it would be approved the marketing team he continued would offer all this data stating why such a lead character was a bad idea, and that would be the end of a lead like Jin. <laughs> Nagoshi thought it was amazing that such a protagonist was the lead character, all that money and development time being spent on a middle-aged dude. Because remember, this is in the millions of dollars. He applied the resolve to entrust things in such a character. From what Nagoshi said, it doesn't seem like that would be possible in Japan. Perhaps he thinks game companies would prefer a younger protagonist which is certainly more common in Japanese games. And we can see that with what we've played with many different Japanese games over the years and stuff like that. Even 
what you would think of the AAA one because they want to make it marketable, right? Or they want to make it into an anime or a manga or into another property or figures. Or something like that. Yeah. Well, James just basically dug into the article itself, but just the mere presence of the statement had me reflecting about how much game development has kind of come in the history of video games, really. In the early days, like when, when back in my day, video games was clear, it was clearly a Japanese thing. And then like all games were developed there, just about everything was developed there. And then we were just like anime back then, we were eagerly waiting for a translation and then for it to be released to English speaking audiences, a lot of ga- different games. And now in the last, what, maybe 20 years, I suppose, since the PlayStation 2 era, or maybe a little sooner, Japan is, while the uh, while very much the father or very much the home and originator of the video game industry as it became popular, in many respects, it's in terms of its development, it's sort of gotten overtaken. I mean, you start, uh, development of video games now has become a worldwide thing. You have different studios in Europe and North America. And now, and this, 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 this statement by Nagoshi just basically, to me, is a reflection as to how game development has truly become a worldwide thing. And maybe at points even surpasses the way it would be in Japan. Wow. Similar to what we've uh, seen before, like... Uh last decade stuff like that because it was end of the ps2 era beginning of ps3 360 era where we heard those comments from kenji inafune and stuff like that and capcom about how they were going to make games and change it to a more worldwide audience and stuff like that and you saw stuff like dead rising and all that that they weren't able to keep up with the tech arms race of everyone else in the west as they said And then you got more cinematic and more storytelling was going on in a lot of these games. And they weren't able to keep up on that end to go at those production values and stuff like that. And you can even see it in a game like this because they they poured so much into this. And Japan would have probably done a good job, but it's still it wouldn't they wouldn't have had the money to make something as incredible as what they put into this. Is it really a money thing? there's a lot of different things there's also the tech too because remember he talked about the motion capture and stuff like that too uh in Mm -hmm. the article and that was something too that he was impressed with the motion capture and remember a lot of them too they do it in japan now but they're using a lot of the voice actors um their physical traits and they're doing some of the motion capture too you know what i mean like it isn't them just providing their voice for a lot of these games too oh yeah i mean they're it's their physical likeness too Mm-hmm. Having, that that's become a bit of a thing, I suppose. But as I said, this was a this thing. This Nagoshi's words caught my attention on a bunch of different angles. And you mentioned your angle; I mentioned mine. And take that for what it is. We'll put the article. You people can judge for themselves if they haven't read it already, because it's Kotaku. Everybody reads. Enough people who care about it would read Kotaku. Well, that one, uh, they were basing it off the interview and stuff like that. So it should be okay, but I know what you mean. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm pretty sure there's other ways we can read the, uh, have done that. Maybe watching the interview itself. 
Well, I, I, I need a translation. <clears throat> okay. But I don't know. Are, are, are either of you planning to play Ghost of Tsushima anytime soon? Everyone, like, I've watched uh, some friends stream it, and it, it looks incredible. I'm definitely going to get it probably closer to the end of the year when uh, we start seeing some of the sales. Because <laughs> there's so many things out there, right? And with the way the economy is. So I'm going to wait, and then I'll spend it when it goes on sale. But it's still going to be fun when I do get to experience it. And I'm going to be intrigued to compare it to, um, was it Sekiko, uh, you uh, only live twice or only die twice or something like that? The one from mm-hmm. Activision, published mm-hmm. by Activision, was from uh, FromSoft. Hmm. Kevin, uh, you going to try and give it a shot? Never say never, but most likely no. And that's because okay. I am now staring at my 3DS backlog <laughs> that still <laughs> needs to be played. Now, and... how many of those are Atlas games that they republished from DS? Because remember, they added content to a lot of those games, and those are meaty RPGs, <clears throat> just me still trying to get through a few of them. Well, ever since SMT5 got announced, a lot of those have become <laughs> tricky to find. So, let's see. I'm looking at it right now. Professor Layton, and which one is it? Oh, the Osron Legacy. I have to play Fire Emblem Awakening. I have to play Bravely Default, and if I like that enough, maybe I'll go through the pain of playing Bravely Second. I have to play Virtue's Last Reward. I have to play Ocarina of Time, and Majora's Mask. So that would have been too bad compared to if you were going through some of the Atlas stuff, because I went through some of those, and actually some of those, though, were fun just to go through again, because they did add a lot of stuff. The one I still love playing, and is one anyone should play on 3DS, or if they have the DS copy, is Radiant Historia. That is a fun... Oh, I still have that too, actually. (laughs) Yeah, If you had to choose one, I would tell you, yeah, to play through that. It's fun on a gameplay level, story level, everything else. And I have Zero Time Dilemma. I actually did finish Richard's Last Reward. I need to finish Zero Time Dilemma, and I have not played through Pokemon Ultra Sun or Ultra Moon. Oh, this is going to suck. Oh, boy. And I'm playing Shin Megami Tensei 4 right now, so that will probably last me until October. Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah, they had that developer uh, partner... uh, conference which everyone got overhyped for but that was great to see those announcements uh, Shin Megami Tensei 5 saying simultaneous world release next year hopefully fingers crossed because that was one of the ones they showed when they announced the switch and that mm. was good and we actually so hopefully that uh, works out because you never know right they've been working on it for so long man but it took them a long time to get uh, through to four but the um, other one that was interesting is they did a remaster for Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne. Okay. And that is uh, going to come out in the fall for Japan and then next year in the spring for us. Okay. Uh, that'll be a nice appetizer for people. So are you thinking uh, that, uh, given the comments all that, Mike, you're thinking of maybe getting Ghosts of uh, Tsushima, maybe? I'm still playing Yakuza 0, mm-hmm. and then there's still the others to play. Yeah, he has to play through Yakuza 1 through 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and the new one. Uh, which is, what's the new one called? Way of the Dragon, I believe. Or something. Yeah, like a like Dragon or something? Like a Dragon, that's it. Like a Dragon. <laughs> like a Dragon. 
The interesting thing is they kept on talking about the RPG elements and stuff like that and how it's going to be different to play compared to all the others. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when it finally comes out. Well, let me just uh, quickly say about the whole Yakuza, uh, having played it and then learning a few more things about the PS4. I discovered, like I made my own personal discovery. I finally discovered a PS4 remote on my uh, tablets, phones, and and computers. So now I can hack into hack into it remotely. And in trying it for the first time and being able to uh, connect my my controller to it, it made me think about basically how something like that uh, ended up winding down the handheld industry. Like how how you how the fact that you can play your play a PS, uh, play your console games on a on your uh, tablet on your iPad on your on your phones basically winded down, wound down the DS and the Vita. And that started with them doing um, the streaming and doing that just between the PS4 and the PS3 and the uh, Vita. Mm-hmm. That's how it started. So it's so definitely developed, as you said, and uh, it's worked out fine for you streaming between the devices because I know at the beginning people were sure jag- how that was going to play out. Yeah, no, it, there were some jaggies. It, I mean, it it, 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 ja- it it cut every so often, but overall the experience wasn't bad. It was it wasn't okay. bad at all. So I, I found it really uh, really curious, uh, and as I said, I'm kind of old school, so this is more of a recent discovery for myself. Okay. Got only uh, maybe about 20 minutes to go here, I think, before we have to really cut off. James, you you mentioned uh, Crunchyroll. Crunchyroll is going to remove 77 Sentai titles, and that's this weekend. Yep. Is there something we have to mention? Uh, That's a a very curious story. We've been talking about how Sentai... People are wondering what's going on with them because they seem to be losing the arms race against Crunchyroll and uh, Funimation with their big parent companies backing them. And they've only gotten like those few millions of dollars that were invested by Cool Japan. So they're either going to have to rethink and say, okay, can we go after some of those Amazon shows? But those ones, they don't aren't able to get the streaming rights for, which are the big thing now. They can only get those physical rights. And so they're getting the scraps of whatever's left over. Like there was only like two I, I, shows they got this season. One was one they already had been doing before, and one was Peter Grill, and it was just shorts. Last that's year, deeply was, concerning. Last year, the only one—sorry, not last year. I mean last season. The only one they got was uh, the co-production between Toei Japan and Saudi Arabia. Our good friend MBS. And folklore uh, stories, and I'm not sure how that would play a lot of other places. I don't think that's the one uh, MBS thinks is going to be a gateway to the rest of the world through Japanese animation. But so anyway. James, so James, you're telling me in the last six months they only acquired three shows. Yeah, there isn't. There isn't really. They haven't gotten many. Like their last big binge was last fall, where they <laughs> got more than maybe five shows, but. They haven't really been getting much. Like Funimation has gotten most of the shows for the past two seasons. And then the rest went to Crunchyroll. And then whatever scraps were left over, if they could get them, then Sentai might get a few, like one or two. Like So that is concerning. And then Would you say, 
Sorry, finish. But the other thing where this started was that before this, they did their announcements for their October slate, and their October slate for releases for Blu-ray was all re-releases, not a single new one. But they mm. are doing dubs of old catalog stuff, so they have now are going to release in October uh, Shirobako, but it's now going to have an English dub. And that's when I've always been thinking about getting, because it's looking at the Japanese animation industry and stuff like that, and the inner workings and stuff like that, but in a more fun, uh, down-to-earth way, and people have always raved about it. But the rest of it is stuff they've already done before, like Punchline, Najima. Is it wrong uh, to try and pick up Girls in a Dungeon uh, Season 2? EF, both seasons. Beautiful Bones, which they had already released, and Akame uh, Gakil. Now, two of them are steelbooks, and they have been doing that for re-releases, but it's like, who's you know, I mean, you're only going to get so many new people buying these titles. And then that Ooh. led into uh, early this morning, where they said 77 uh, titles from Sentai Filmworks are going to be taken off uh, Crunchyroll. And the big thing also for that is they said August 1st, so they only gave two days' notice. Think about oh, that. How we right. talk about? I guess I said it's a mind. So how are you going to watch all those series if you want to watch some of them in uh, two days or less than this, two days? This is the thing about being the minnow. And the I'm other the thing that was funny today, I got an email from mm-hmm. Sentai, and we were talking about uh, online conventions and how Sentai had been absent at a lot of these online events and stuff like that. Now they've only done so many panels at so many conventions they're definitely always at ax but they weren't at the ax online event so on august 26 they sentai is going to have their own sentai at home event (laughs) and they said uh, join us for an online event full of special guests industry news announcements gives giveaways and lots more so you never know maybe they have something but a lot of us given the other announcements aren't too uh we aren't too optimistic. Let's put it that way. Like they might have to look at other things, like similar to how Discotech has been doing it, and maybe look at certain older shows or maybe some back catalog stuff, and see if they can get some of that. And they'll also be able to get the um, streaming rights. But Jeez. the key thing too is and they were trying to do um, SD on Blu-ray, right? Because mm. Discotech was the only one doing that one. And just as Vega said, how hard it was to kind of get to that point because there's a lot of hurdles behind it. And supposedly, uh, I have one of uh, the Estee Blu-rays from uh, Sentai, but a lot of people said the quality wasn't quite there, to put it lightly. And even Justin Savakis admitted that and said, it's like, I'll help you guys like iron out these details. But they just didn't seem to, it fell on deaf ears. And all the releases that they've had for SD on Blu-ray haven't been the greatest, but they haven't released one of those SD on Blu-rays in over a year. So it's hard to say if they don't have HD material, does that mean they're not going to go after those now because they're not doing SD on Blu-ray? And they said they're never doing any DVD releases like a lot of other companies because DVD is dead. You're just yeah. not getting the sales. Hmm. Uh, I don't know what to say now. We'll just have to see how this, uh, how Sentai's next little bit plays out. That's about the only thing that comes to mind. 
Well, it, it's it's been an any... interesting history, as we said, because remember, they were the big boys back when they were ADV and stuff like that, and they tried to have uh, their home run. Uh, I forget who it was, the Japanese uh, company. Sojits. They tried to team. Yep. Yeah, so so yeah, did. Right. They There's tried to team with them, and then that uh, unfortunately didn't work. And they so just decided, you know what, we're gonna pull out, destroy you guys, and then uh, take our tiles to Funimation. And so Damn that cool. left them high and dry. And then they had to reorganize. Remember, but it was still streaming had taken off with Crunchyroll and stuff like that. So they were still able to build up and get those new shows. But streaming definitely change the game and stuff like that even with them having their own platform with high dive and stuff like that it's mm. still not as big as the big players and stuff like that so it's kind of too little too late in a way i feel okay yeah and the other thing is they just weren't Last able to make those deals the other guys were able to make like funimation being able to say okay they went to navarre then he had the billionaires and then gen was able to play off universal and sony and get the Sony money. So that's big backing and Crunchyroll was able to get investment bankers, which then turned into Warner. And so just laughing his way to his golden mansion. Oh boy. (laughs) But once you get those big backers, right? It's like you're able and to get all those bigger, newer shows. So it it makes you wonder how the way to uh, get some, they can still get some newer shows, but they got to supplement those with maybe some older catalogs and then uh, figure out other ways to get, if they want just physical, some of the stuff from either Amazon or Netflix. But the problem is they won't have the streaming rights, which as we said, has become so important now, right? Because that's where yes. a lot of people are. It's just the business. And, and I wonder how much of it is because of money and then how much of it is because of the strength of the relationship or the strength of prior relationships or the lack thereof. Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting because they've definitely been in the market and people in Japan definitely know John Leifer and stuff like that and then they made the partnership uh, and Cold Japan owns a bit of them so you'd think that would open a few doors but it's kind of hard when you're going against two Goliaths as we said right so yeah right. when they just dump truck a bunch of money in front of your door how can you say no and the other thing is we've seen the co-productions too, like Netflix is doing their thing and so is Crunchyroll is investing in the actual production committees and stuff like that too. And I'm not sure they have the money to do that either. Mm. They had it in the past. No, they definitely did it before and stuff like that with Samurai Gun and other things. But Samurai Gun. (laughs) I know that's the last one I remember, but anyway. Hmm. Oh yeah. man! Oh man! Anyway, as I said, let's just see how how the next little bit goes for Sentai. But uh, it's tough to watch. Okay, before we go tonight, we want to at least mention uh, once again a little bit about what we've been watching or playing or reading. Obviously, some of us have done that on mass already. But I asked Kevin and James and Mohammed, although you already know what his his answer is, if there's one thing you would like to at least say you're reading and go to bat for or watching and go to bat for say it here and I'll give you a minute to do so. So does anyone, Kevin, James, do you want to say anything? Uh, just one thing you're watching or reading that you'd like to recommend right now? I hear you'd like us to play some more Yakuza, right, Mike? 
No, no, I'm, I, I, no, my, 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 my title won't be Yakuza, though. This, the thing that, that caught my attention won't be Yakuza this time around. I promise. Well, it was funny. Uh, One title I was and watching a, a classic team. over the past uh, weeks, a uh, few weeks, actually, since we did the last recording, and that was going into the discotheque uh, library because I had uh, the fourth uh, box set of Lupin the Third Part Two. And so okay. I was going through that. Ooh, and boy. the key thing about this last collection, because we finally got it all on disc and that, is they have the two Miyazaki episodes and they have the dub that Streamline did for those two Miyazaki episodes. And it's just interesting to cap off with those Miyazaki episodes because it's the last episode, episode 155 Miyazaki did, and uh, 145. And he isn't credited, but we you can definitely tell he helmed those two because the quality just jumps incredibly. And you're just like, what the heck am I watching? Because you even notice it now. But it was an interesting experience going through and watching those two. And they actually had some commentaries on them and just seeing that he was nurturing those uh, talent there at the time and stuff like that. And how he complained and he's complained uh, in some of the essays he wrote in some of the books and things, interviews he's done saying that it was through hell that he was doing that in 1980 doing those two episodes but you're like, he didn't have to do that he could have done like maybe just a bit more quality or same quality as the other episodes, but no, he went like full on film quality and there were so many more frames, so many more things going on in those two episodes that you're just like holy smokes, the man just quality gauge was off the charts that he was running himself ragged along with uh, the crew but if you're an animation fan as they said uh always watching is always a good thing wherever you want to start whether it's the specials the movies or check out any of the tv series basically a bit of a history lesson here yeah, but that one's a fun one for because those were done after Cagliostro and stuff like that because remember Mm. Cagliostro didn't do so well remember at the time and so it was like the long burning thing like we always are like oh Cagliostro, everyone knows that and everything's great and stuff like that but originally it it was a bust and mm. so to make up for that that's why he did these two episodes on part two hmm. mm. okay kevin one title just go to bat for one title for a minute okay uh my initial pick I will withhold for the time being. Instead, I'm going to go with something that uh, I had to read in a hurry, and that is Saikano. So, hmm. Viz, Viz put out this manga, yes, going pretty far back, early 2000s. Of I'm say the early aughts, right? And they only released that one edition. They never re-released it, I don't think. No. Yes. Okay, and so I read volume one and I think volume two back in high school. So we're talking like 13, 14, 15 years ago. And uh, I have a friend in high school who I still talk to every now and then. That was one of his favorite manga. And he he tried to get me to watch it and or read it and i never did but like you know maybe several years ago i did 
I did buy the manga. I found it for a good price. And uh, last week, uh, I had an opportunity to actually sell the manga, and I decided to capitalize on that. And so I had two days to read all of Saikano. The good thing is it's not that long of a manga. I think it's like seven volumes or so. You're correct. It is seven volumes. Uh, granted, volumes six and seven are a little longer, or a little thicker, but uh, anyway, uh, you know, I part of the reason why I never got around to reading it was because I didn't want to put myself into a depressive mindset. Because, <laughs> because when when your girlfriend is essentially the Japanese army's only chance of winning. You're saying we should not use the thing of saying girlfriend becomes military badass to save all of Japan. No, no, <laughs> this is not, this is not girls and Panzer. This is not like any of those Moe kind of shows. This, this is about a boy and a girl who fell in love. And early in their relationship, he discovers that she is the ultimate weapon. And you, how do I put this? As she starts to lose her humanity throughout the course of the manga, and you really see these characters suffer sometimes at the expense of others. And you know what? Sometimes they don't make the best decisions, but these are high schoolers. What do you expect? And in the end, I feel like I kind of went through that roller coaster ride thinking like, yeah, you know what? This was, this was great. This was really well executed. Uh, and I feel like now it's just lost to time because, uh, while the anime has been relicensed by Sentai Filmworks as She the Ultimate Weapon, Viz no longer has the manga anymore. There is no mention of it on their website. And the seller, the person who I sold it to, sorry, I'm the seller, the person who I sold it to uh, also mentioned this, and she was elated that like someone else could share that feeling of how wonderful it was. I hope it gets. I hope it comes back out at some point, but I don't think it's that likely. Well, hmm. it's still it's still a good series and stuff like that. And it, that was one of the few ones the mangaka, I believe, had come out from him. And he has a very distinct uh, manga style, stuff like that. And it definitely works with the more realistic interpretations with that one and his previous work, uh, which I think was Ihito, which is more of um, a slice of life. This go-lucky uh, guy that is basically working as a salaryman and stuff like that. Hmm. Interesting. No, no. I mean, we're talking like a title, a key title from roughly 15 years ago. Maybe a little more, but it was a big one back then. Yeah, I would say it was one of the more popular titles back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. But no one yeah. really talks about it anymore. And it's interesting because Viz rights for everything on that one because yeah, that was a Shukakukan uh, or Shueisha title. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll I'll try and keep mine rather quick. 
when we did the Miyazaki Digest uh, more than a month ago, um, when Jesse Betteridge came on the show from Zen in Canada, just before we went on the air, he made a recommendation to me personally. And that recommendation was Wave Listen to Me, the anime based on uh, Hiroaki Samura's currently running manga. He recommended that. It was only uh, streaming exclusively on Funimation here. And I had a free fun- uh, Funimation premium pass for two months. And I got, a- I got around to watching it in the final week of my free trial. And I think for the first time in a long time, I found myself mini-binging, I guess, so to speak, episodes. You see, I was watching like two, three, four episodes a day. And I finished it just before the pass expired. It was a fun series to watch. It was, uh, I think you could still watch it after your pass expired, Mike, so you would have been okay. And- just to be sure. Although I, uh, Jesse also gave me a warning that they might be clamping. They may, I, I may not have had that option if I was just a free member. But, yeah, no, certain uh, ones, but I think a week after, then it goes to free users and stuff like that. But for the last season and this season, they haven't had any ads for the free users for okay. some people. For some people. Uh, but I, I, it's, uh, I will say, I've never read Blade of the Immortal. I know Samura is yeah. known for that. That's his most, more, more popular title right now. And work and stuff like that too, of course. And I know that's too. a joke. I know that one of the long-running jokes about the manga and Samura's comments on on the manga to Wave Listen to Me is that he's made the promise not to kill anybody. <laughs> Although, yeah, no, I remember that joke. It was a good. It was. Funny. It's a good joke, and it's a good joke, especially when you think of the main character Minari, because she looks like she is prepared to kill somebody. Yeah, and you think of the storylines too, right? There's oh, that to think about too. Is those a couple of the storylines, and you're like, it's amazing that someone hasn't died yet, and that's yeah, the only way I can say that's, without spoiling. <laughs> that's that's pretty accurate, actually. Hey, Mike. Yes, yeah, just quickly. Yeah, w- would you say there's any any uh, situations of misogyny in that show? Because I I heard that there may have been a couple scenes like that where it kind of leans in that direction. Ah. <sighs> I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, I wouldn't go that but, far either. Yeah, I could I see maybe where someone might could happen, take it but, the wrong way, but I don't feel like it. You know what a, I mean? And, but we're just guys. That's the thing. Maybe I'd have to ask, a, like, get another opinion on that. I heard it's, about this in another podcast, so I'd have to go back and listen to it. But okay. when that was brought up, I was like, oh, okay. Some of I mean, it is maybe the setup too, right, Mike? How we the basic setup is she is at a bar, she's drinking with this guy and stuff like that, and talking about her former boyfriend yeah. that is an and asshole. And basically having it, it recorded uh, without her knowledge, but then she in that drunken stupor gave her permission to have it aired, and it, surely sure enough, it was aired, but yeah, somehow it's a new gig on radio. And then she's listening to it while she's at her the restaurant she works at. And so you could kind of see how that would be perceived the wrong way. But and then he's like basically forcing her to do this. And then she's just still going along with it, doing this radio gig as a side gig. And it has a lot of really funny moments. So it's a high recommendation. But one thing that also appeals, uh, appeals to me about it and has my attention is off the top of your head, can you think of an anime or manga 
wholly set in Sapporo. Because Sapporo is so, so well depicted in the anime. Like, I, I recognized a few of the landmarks just because I've seen pictures of it in other shows and documentaries. That thought crossed my mind, too, when I heard it was based in Sapporo. So I can't think of one right yeah, now. Yeah, that was a big thing. Like, we think of Hokkaido, but they never... Really sure. It's like they may be in Sapporo, but they always say Hokkaido. But a lot of them, yeah, you can't think of many where it's like Sapporo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know and I mean, I, mean, I mean, all other major cities. And takes advantage of all those landmarks, yeah. as we said, that we can mm-hmm. recognize. And it's, uh, it's so well done. And it, it sold me on the manga, but I'll wait for the sales. I, I don't know what else to say about it, aside from it's a, it's a worthwhile watch. And, and in many respects, as people who do at least radio uh, to do who do podcasts it there's a certain degree of relatability to it at least i i could relate somewhat in some respects not to say any That's, of those situations have actually happened but just some of the thing the little de- those details like somehow could identify with in some form the radio angle was why i wanted to read or watch thing. it and 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 it kind of comes to my last point about it it's talk radio in japan is still a thing the radio drama is, as far as I know, still a thing. When we think of radio here, it's like if it's talk, it's news talk or sports talk, but there's not really general interest stuff like CBC. But something like CBC radio is probably you probably hear a little bit more of in Japan. So that type of radio is still a thing there. And it's sort of a shame because... Well, I, I I guess personally, I think it's a shame because I'm sort of into that myself. So there's a thought for it there. And as I said, high recommendation. If you can check out the anime on on Funimation in whatever form, if you have the subscription or not, I know, I think it was like still very, it's very popular. I think it's quite popular right now, but I can, uh, but the most best I could do is just add my name to the pile. If you get the chance to watch it at the first season, and I don't know if it's going to continue, but it's 12 episodes. And it's a really worthwhile watch. And if you want to continue, you can always read the series from uh, Kodansha USA, either in print or digitally. And they're doing the simul release for the chapters as well. So give that a look. You can keep up to date. Anyway, that's that's my recommendation uh, for one title. And we're almost done, but I do want to make one final thought or give one final recommendation for this episode. About two years ago, uh, I mentioned in an on my mind about a documentary on NHK World about a man who uh, wanted to do a kimono project where he depicted every country in the world. This was in the run-up to the Tokyo Olympics. He wanted to do a kimono depicting every country in the world or every country participating in the Olympics. He called it the One World Kimono Project. It was supposed to have been completed before the Tokyo Olympics, as mentioned before. Obviously, that hasn't happened because just like everything else, COVID hit. But last week, last Friday, July 24th, when the Olympics was supposed to have begun, the One World Kimono Project announced its completion and released a YouTube video depicting all of the kimonos they made. It's a 14-minute video. I know for those in the know, I know that uh, Anime North fans, I, I know that the uh, 
people who did the kimono workshops at Anime North, this has been a thing they had been keeping up with. So that would be big news in the kimono fan community here in North America. So we'll put up a link in the show notes uh, to the YouTube video announcing the completion of the project. And I think NHK still has the VOD of the original documentary. And if you ever get the chance to see that, because I'm told that's set to be taken off their website sometime in September, if you get the chance to see that, that is a fun watch, especially since one of the stories they tell in that documentary is about the Canadian kimono, or more specifically, the obi sash that went into the Canadian kimono. So, uh, once again, a worthwhile watch. Anyway, that's it. That's all we got for this episode. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another edition of the Anime Roundtable. <laughs>